0: Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Tannock, I'm a journalist. And Keith, today we're talking about the British Army, and we're looking at a book called Changing of the Guard, written by British journalist Simon Aikham. Now, Keith, firstly, can you tell us a little bit about this controversial book, which essentially exposes the failures of the British Army's campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan?
1: Yes, I actually found the book fascinating. I've got it here with me, so you can see it runs to 700 pages. That's very thick. I've, <laughs> got, I've got to say, I couldn't put it down, as they say. I was involved with the War Office half a century ago, so I find it fascinating to see how much or how little has actually changed with the way that we do the British Army today compared with where we were when I joined the British workforce all those decades ago. Simon Acom has obviously set out to produce the definitive cultural history of the British Army. So he is someone who had served briefly as a young officer in the Army as part of a uh, an entry-level position, which you can get on now in the in the British Army. So he, he's had a, a brief flirtation with the Army, so he's not speaking as a veteran. And he's someone who comes from a Cambridge academic family, um, not part of the sort of the broad sweep of military families that you get in Great Britain where you've got, you know, parents giving rise to children who then go on to be work in the army, who then have other children who go to work in the army. You don't get any of that with the the Acom family. Uh, so what he's wanted to do is to produce, I think, an outside assessment of the culture of the British army since 9-11. So in 2001, in uh, September the 11th, we get the terrorist attack on um, the United States, um, So the British Army then is deployed on uh, operations, well, originally in Afghanistan, then later in Iraq. So they are the two major areas of focus. And the British Army at that time was calling itself the best small army in the world. So China and the United States has large armies. Uh, The British Army is a smaller army, but well-trained, well-motivated, well-equipped. And very successful in fighting campaigns. That was how they did the marketing, and this book is really an assessment of how truthful that image is. And he's got himself into no end of trouble because he's really exposed a lot of the, the well, the untruth in that marketing. And I've covered both Iraq and Afghanistan from the sort of the big picture political point of view. I find it intriguing to look down, well, look at it the, from the grassroots point of view, from the point of view of ordinary British soldiers, and you can see that it was a disaster. I was saying it was a disaster in terms of the politics, but then when you look at how the war was being fought at the level of the ordinary soldier, it was a disaster at that level as well. So I, I as I say, I just couldn't put the book down. It's a huge book, but really very engrossing and full marks to him. He's carried out well over 200 interviews for the book. Uh, it's run over several years. Um, as I say, he, he set out deliberately to write a cultural history of the British Army for the last 20 years.
0: So we, before we get to that untruth that you mentioned, let's talk about some of the events. One of the key moments he describes in the book is about a wounded Taliban fighter in Afghanistan who was shot dead by a Royal Marine, Sergeant Alexander Blackman, The whole incident was captured on a helmet-mounted camera worn by one of the Marines on the patrol. So he's really exposing some of
1: these incidents. And this is really part of this new face of warfare, that um, alleged war crimes can be recorded on helmet cameras. And Sergeant Blackman, the Royal Marine, rather than a British soldier, um, Sergeant Blackman was caught killing um, a Taliban and that ended up with his going to jail and a huge campaign, I think also that what Ackman is saying by sort of following through on the, the pressures that were involved and, and eventually Blackman gets discharged from the crime, I think that what he's getting at is this irony that at the very top of the organisation, which would be the Prime Minister of the day, Tony Blair, and then George Brown, you end up with politicians making really stupid decisions and they get away with it scot-free. Then you look at the army itself, senior officers all end up losing a war but getting off scot-free. Nobody has damaged their careers by being associated with these two defeats. But when you get down to the individual soldier level, then they're the ones who get picked out for alleged war crimes. So this is, is, I think, the tragedy of it, that they are sort of uh, scapegoating certain individuals whereas the really big criminals are at the top of the organisation and they've got away with it. And
0: to that point, while Blackman ended up in jail, his commanders were decorated and promoted. <laughs> um, yeah. And the author, Simon Aikham argues that the, that Royal Marine isn't just one rogue individual, but he's the product of a systemic leadership failure at the most senior levels of the British military, as you've pointed out.
1: It is systemic, and I think it's also a basic problem which the British never quite worked out, which again goes back to their marketing, I think, uh, with how do you fight? counterinsurgency campaigns. So Iraq and Afghanistan required soldiers to be working 24 hours a day, in effect, very different from the nature of warfare in World War I, World War II, where you had clearly defined front lines and you had periods when you were not fighting. In Iraq and Afghanistan, it was a 24-hour-a-day continuous campaign. Now, the British like to point out to their success in uh, Malaya, which is now part of Malaysia. Uh, They were fighting the communist terrorists. That's where they made their name uh, by beating uh, guerrillas. They were in for the long haul. Uh, Field Marshal Sir Gerald Templer, who was actually my Field Marshal, when he was there, coined the term Winning Hearts and Minds. So he realised the military were in a subservient position to civilian leadership. And they tried to introduce major civilian changes. And in a sense, the British have dined out on that success for the last 70 years. You know, that was our big success. And it's the way that we can point to, you know, the Americans and all their failures. We're saying, well, the British pulled off that Malayan campaign. And, and of course, Malaysia is, is now a very modern, successful country. I think the British were lulled into a sense of arrogance that they could fight these types of struggles And clearly what ACOM has shown is the British were really no better than the Americans and indeed were quite often worse than the Americans because they were smaller and not nearly as well equipped. And this has come as a real shock to those of us who normally would support the British army just to see how chaotic the army was.
0: And so was Britain in fact unprepared for the amount of reconstruction required in both Iraq and Afghanistan in terms of
1: infrastructure and civil society. Absolutely. If you're going to go in and invade a country, then you've got to do the job thoroughly, which is what the British were willing to do in Malaysia or Malaya, uh, the War of the Running Dogs. The Americans thought they could get by with their invasions on the cheap, so they were all underprepared. You know, particularly if you take the case of Iraq, um, they hadn't given enough thought to what was going on in Iraq and how difficult it was going to be to govern. Iraq. They just hadn't given the full tr- thinking to that. And the British were caught out by that as well, by that same lack of preparedness. And in the case of Afghanistan, they realized, the British realized that they were actually not really fighting the Taliban. They were fighting a lot of other tribes who were fighting their own feuds that had gone on for centuries. And one of the groups in the fight were the Taliban. And so it was, always, it was an absolute mess. If you'd you'd had an anthropologist running the government in Britain, you might well have had somebody saying, no, it's just too complicated for us to get involved in. Remember, this goes back to an issue which we've got with Stanley McChrystal, who was the American general who got sacked by Obama because of the Rolling Stone interview that he did with Michael Hastings. His team didn't personally criticize Obama. They just simply said, look, you can't win this sort of war. It's as simple as that. We Americans are outsiders. We will never be accepted. Afghanis don't like foreigners, nothing personal. They've been unpleasant to everybody since Alexander the Great. The British three times, the Russians, now it's the Americans they don't like. People really you know, put their faith in all this counterinsurgency and all the rest. Of it. it just didn't work. It was a failed strategy all the way along.
0: And it has been suggested that Britain's involvement perhaps enabled the Taliban to gain influence, power and leadership that, Possibly it hadn't previously had.
1: Yeah, because they wiped out some of the other feuding tribes. They created the vacuum that was then filled by the Taliban.
0: You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. I'm Sasha Tannock, And Keith, today we're talking about the British Army. We're looking at a book called Changing of the Guard, written by British journalist Simon Acombe. Now, there has been much debate about this book. It has been widely discussed, praised, and criticised, but the original publisher got cold feet about this book and, in fact, pulled out as it was close to being finished with allegations it was a result of pressure from people in high places. Now, that's been outright denied by the publisher, but what does this implication say about power and influence? Yeah,
1: and the way in which, unfortunately, the army likes to maintain its own cone of silence over its operations So uh, Simon Acom received an advance from uh, publisher Penguin who who publishes my books, and that somewhere along the line they decided to pull out and Scribe decided that they would take the chance and publish it. There's obviously the risk of litigation because he's very precise in whom he's quoting. And so there's always a risk that some of those people uh, could end up saying, no, I disagree with what you've actually said there. And in the end, there's been no, none of that litigation as far as I can tell. But it also sort of shone a light on the problem of being able to talk openly and cleanly about a British institution. So the British Army is very highly regarded. And the problem is that a certain arrogance then steps in, and the assumption is that you do so well, you're above criticism. And what Aikham is showing in this book, in fact, is that the British Army should be criticised for some of the things that have gone wrong. So if you look back at Iraq and Afghanistan, you've got really basically three groups of people that individuals like me uh, talk about all the time. So obviously the politicians, you've got um, the lack of of money uh, that's involved, and yet thirdly, what we're looking at here is the whole issue of culture which is within the army itself, um, and it comes out when you're really getting down to the fine details of this. So by all means, blame the politicians, blame the treasury bureaucrats for not supplying enough money to buy the equipment, etc. But you've also got to look at the culture of the institution itself. So in management books, there is this phrase that culture, each strategy for breakfast. Uh, there's some dispute, really, as to who coined the phrase. The person who's got the credit may not actually have coined it. Um, but what it meant is that you can have the best strategy in the world, but if you've got a poor culture, it's not going to work. So culture eats strategy for breakfast. And what Aikam is is arguing is that there is much in the British Army culture which needs to be changed and which the military are resistant to changing. This is not a new issue. It goes back even to the 1920s and 1930s and the role of mechanisation. So in the 20s and 30s, there was a move by certain individuals like Basil Little Hart um, for the British Army to have far less reliance on horses and much more reliance on tanks. And that the Army didn't like that. The Army liked their men being on horseback, Um they weren't very fond of this newfangled invention that Churchill created in World War I called the tank. So they were resistant to that. Um, it's interesting if you look at the history of chemical warfare, that it's the scientists that pushed the development of chemical warfare, because again, the conservative nature of the army or the and the defence generally, defence establishment said we don't like chemical weapons. Makes fighting in a chemical suit much more difficult. And I, for this on this occasion, I agree with the military that chemical warfare, the invention by the scientists, uh, was not a good idea. So you're dealing with institutions that are incredibly conservative, difficult to change, and Aikam is saying, well, the British paid a price for their unwillingness to change.
0: So if we go back to Aikam's attempt to try and analyse this issue with this book and the troubles he had publishing it, but eventually it was independently published, he's described that as a terrifying precedent that a publisher could make exceptional demands of investigative journalists. And it does raise an interesting question. As you said, he interviewed more than 200 people over five years. But when he returned to some of them, they had what's called source remorse, which is where (laughs) the dispute started, because some of them wanted to withdraw their statements. But um, he said, you can't have a situation where journalists, investigative journalists, are writing books and then have to get approval from every source they've spoken to on the record. Yeah. um, well, or you do that never at get the published. Time.
1: You do that at the time, but the problem is when you go back to them later after they've been talking with each other and if there's pressure from the Ministry of Defence, because one of the other conditions that suddenly arose is that this book would need in draft form to go to the Ministry of Defence for the Ministry to decide whether or not there are parts of it that should be deleted. And, and this is what he opposed, and full marks for him, because I think the, the book is all the better through it not going through the censorship of the Ministry of Defence. But it's interesting, you know, that only last week we were talking about the Russians and and the tightly controlled society in which they live. Well, we have a similar situation in Britain when it comes to the army and the control that the deep state wants to maintain over what goes on. And we see the same sort of th- situation in Australia where the public service does not like public scrutiny of what it's doing.
0: And if they don't like public scrutiny, how do we learn from sensitive topics like, the British military's failure in these countries and similar topics.
1: Well, the fact is we don't learn. That's why we go on repeating the same old mistakes. It was the people outside of the army who could see the risk involved with invading Iraq or invading Afghanistan, particularly Iraq, back in 2003. We had massive demonstrations in many countries. So people who were outside the bubble could see the problem, but the people who were inside the bubble who were interested in getting medals, promotions, et cetera. They just thought a war would be a good idea. And so they're very much focused on their own career uh, rather than the prospects of whether or not they're actually going to go to win the war. And, of course, it set up a chain reaction because it means that for many Arab countries now, the West is seen as in retreat. That if you look back to um, uh, 1979, you have a number of significant developments that occur. That's why I refer to the long war, and this is one component of the long war. So in 1979, you get the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which went badly, and the Soviets were driven out in 1979. Also in 1979, we get the Iranian students taking over the American embassy in Tehran and the, the breaking of relations between uh, Iran and the United States, which continues to this day. And, of course, there's now this nuclear confrontation between the United States and Iran. And then thirdly, far less publicized, you had the taking over of the shrine in uh, Saudi Arabia by Islamic fundamentalists, again in that same year, 1979. Now, these were all separate activities, but they all, for me, make it year one of this long war. And the long war could run on for 100 years. General Lee for example, the Australian Army has said that it could run on for hundred years. I, I agree. It's, it's, it's not going to be a quick fix. And so, what we see then are a number of occasions where you've got in Islamic states, you've got people who are willing to rebel. So you would think you deal with the, the Taliban, then you end up with this group called the Islamic State. You look at Africa now. You have got uh, Boko Haram uh, in parts of West Africa, etc. So there is this long struggle that's going on and the challenge for the british army as it is for all conventional armies is to work out exactly how do you respond to this challenge and nobody really has got their head around that which is why i think we need to have far more open debate on all of this and give a far greater role to anthropologists uh, because it's an issue which is not just purely military this is what McChrystal was trying to say about afghanistan and why the Americans were doing badly in Afghanistan. You just can't rely on brute military force. You've got to have an understanding of the country that you wish to attack.
0: So if there's been a lack of open debate, do you think the British Army has learned anything from their failures? Or as Akam argues, is it fair to say it has been more interested in covering it up and shutting down any criticism?
1: Well, I, I fear that he's right. I think that they are more interested in just shutting down the public debate. And we will only know if they've learned any lessons when the next time they get involved in a conflict. And the problem is you can never predict when you're going to get involved in the next conflict. Nobody had any idea that we would be in war in Afghanistan or that the politicians would ever be stupid enough to, to invade Iraq in 2003. So we have no idea of knowing when the next test will be. We just have to hope that you've got younger forces within the army are willing to um, think about reforms, it it reminds me of that statement about science, the science moves forward one death at a time. So as you have elderly scientists dying off, you've got younger scientists coming through with the new ideas and far fewer older people to resist those new ideas. And perhaps this is going to be the story of the reform of the British Army. It's interesting. You go back to the end of the 19th century and we were talking about the reform of the British Army in those days. Um, and we introduced reforms at that time. It was uh, heavy going, but they were introduced at the end of the 19th century. Then we had reforms in the 20th century, for example, mechanisation and more use of an armoured corps, et cetera. So who knows what other changes will need to be made to keep the army relevant to today's conflicts.
0: Well, Keith, Aikam's book has certainly sparked some debate, so interesting reading. I look forward to our chat next week. Thank you. That was this week's episode of Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Make sure you tune in next week when we'll break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Listener.